This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Good afternoon. It is a Monday drive following what was an incredible sports weekend. Now, we'll get to Wake Forest upset win over number 19 Virginia Tech in a few minutes. But let's talk about the Carolina Panthers, who I still believe today are well ahead of schedule. They lose to the Saints in the Superdome by a field goal. And my reasoning about their current status goes back to some of the best advice I've ever been given. Robert, I don't know how much I've told you about this, but between my freshman and sophomore years in college, I was in the budding super metropolis of Denton, Texas, selling educational books door-to-door and wasn't really getting many results, at least not the results I expected early on, working 80 hours a week, 100-degree weather. I thought I was going to make absolute bank going door-to-door. Do people still go door-to-door? Maybe not in the age of COVID, but when's the last time you had a door-to-door salesman come by? I had a witness this weekend come by. Okay, Jehovah's Witness, a little bit different. We got confused as being Jehovah's Witness. It actually was a good end for me when I'd show up at someone's door. Sorry, we're not interested, Jehovah's Witness and all this. Well, I'm not Jehovah's Witness. Oh, thank goodness. Kind of wasn't in there. But let's get to the point. I was working hard. And I was doing what I was told. Wasn't really getting the results. And that's when a mentor shared this advice with me. Three simple words. Behavior precedes results. In other words, once you build good habits and keep doing the right things consistently, that's when the results will come. The Panthers, they're in the same place I was at 18 years old in Denton, Texas. They're already doing the right things and playing consistent winning football. They just haven't had the results go their way yet. They're still ahead of schedule, though. This team, I feel like... Each time they lose, I have to blow it up and look big picture and remind you what the expectations really should be for this team. This year's team, 2020, what the expectations should be. They shouldn't be able to compete yet. Not against teams with winning records. You'll lose Cam. You'll lose Luke. You'll lose Greg Olson. You have 46.5% of your snaps returning from a year ago. That's by far dead last in the NFL. You don't have an offseason in person. You have a coaching staff that came straight from college. No NFL head coaching experience on it. No preseason games to work in these younger players. And as a result, Carolina has only been favored in one of these seven games. Still three and four. That's exceeding expectations. They've been competitive in every single game. Against the Bucks, making it a one-touchdown game before they had the long Leonard Fournette run with the minute left. They were in that game. If they don't turn it over, they might win it. Had the ball with the chance to win against the Raiders. So close to losing against the Chargers, but they found a way to win on the road. Beat Arizona convincingly. Beat Atlanta. It was more convincing than what the final sh- uh, score showed. Chicago had the ball with the chance to win that game or at least tie that game. And on Sunday, had an opportunity as well, yesterday. And they're doing this despite no Christian McCaffrey or K.K. Short 
or Russell Okun, who got injured early on in this game. They're taking steps. They're doing the right things. They're they're competitive in games. They're just not ready to win yet. Because here's the secret sauce of the NFL. The dirty little secret. It's all about windows of winning. That's what the NFL operates in. What is your window? Generally, the winning window is three to five years with the way salary structure works, the salary caps, free agency. It's usually a three to five year window. You can keep a championship team together before you have to make adjustments and have a totally different team out there. And it's designed that way. So that way there's more parity in the sport, more fan bases get involved. They make more money because there's more interest nationwide. Three to five years, that is the general window of winning. That's why I'd be surprised if Kansas City wins more than three Super Bowls. That would be a surprise to me, even though Tyreek Hill and others are talking about winning seven. They said the same thing about Golden State in basketball. It's a lot shorter, these windows, than you expect them to be in salary cap sports. The Panthers' window is not open yet. But here's the crazy thing. I didn't think that window would be open until 2022. In the offseason, that's where I was at. 2022, that's when this team could start winning. I no longer feel that way. I think next year, considering how competitive they've already been and what we've learned about some of the younger core pieces on this roster, I think next year they can compete. A lot of that has to do with the division. Tampa looked awesome yesterday. Scoring a ton of points. Tom Brady bouncing back after a tough start to the year statistically. But he's still 43. We don't know if he's going to be playing next year. He signed a two-year deal with Tampa. We don't know for sure if he's going to play. And who knows if he's going to be the same guy. He's 43 years old. He'll be 44 next year. Drew Brees is 41. He already has his next gig lined up. The Panthers... Proved yesterday, they're every bit as good as the Saints. And that's saying something. That's impressive that they went toe-to-toe at New Orleans. Like I expected them to do. Because on paper, they are every bit as good as New Orleans. And it was such a great game yesterday. They just fell short. New Orleans has been there. (laughs) They've done these things that I'm talking about. These good habits, winning consistently, playing uh, consistent winning football. They've been doing that for years. So when push came to shove at the end of the game, it was like uh, muscle memory. They knew exactly what to do when it was all said and done. But next year, Atlanta, we don't know who their coach is going to be. They're looking at a complete reboot, it seems like. So Carolina might be in a spot with one more good draft, a few, really one more good offseason. They could be in a position to win the NFC South or at least get into the postseason now that it's seven teams per conference getting in. They already are playing winning football. That is an achievement. No matter what else happens this year, I'm going to view 2020 as a success for Carolina because they've gotten it right in the three most important areas. Coaching staff. Matt Rule. Players are buying in. We know that because of how hard the guys are playing. How competitive these games have been. They're buying in to what Coach Rule is selling. That's not a small thing. Joe Brady, he's a star. He's a star. He's going to be a future head coach. Carolina has that as their OC. That's great. Phil Snow, 
we were praising him for what he did with such little talent over the last month until this past weekend. Now he's getting crushed a bit because they were unable to get on the off the field on third down. But I think they have the right staff identified moving forward. Quarterback, that's the second most important area. Teddy, he's a franchise guy. Perfect for this system. Perfect for this team. Wears a chip on his shoulder. Trying to defy the odds. That's what keep pounding's about. That's what the Carolina Panthers are all about. He knows this offense. Teddy Bridgewater's perfect for it. He's 27, turns 28 next month. Then there's the draft. Last year, Marty Herney got it right with the 15th pick, Brian Burns. And this year, Derek Brown, even though he didn't have a great game yesterday, he spent most, most of this year leading the NFL in tackles for loss. Jeremy Chin, flying all over the place. One of the most fun defensive players the Panther ha- uh, Panthers have on defense. Uh, so I feel confident they got it right in those three areas. So to me, 2020 is a success regardless of what else happens moving forward. So that's the Panthers' side of the story. I've also got to give some love to Wake Forest football for their upset win over Virginia Tech on Saturday. What a night it was in the dash. I believe that to be one of Dave Clawson's most impressive wins as the Deeks coach. Bowl wins, eh, they don't matter as much to me as they do some people. So the only ones I'd likely put ahead of this win are the state wins in 17 and 17. Or in 2018, excuse me. If you have difficulty recalling those games, odds are you're not a Deeks fan, but you might remember the punch-out on the goal line in Winston-Salem and the absolutely decimated team that played in 2018. It was Thursday night. I was at the game. Senior night for Ryan Finley. State's wearing the black uniforms. It's on ESPN, nationally broadcast. And Wake had the ball late. Jamie Newman, his first career start, and he finds Jack Frutenthal. They score a touchdown. They needed to win that game. Just an absolutely decimated roster. They found a way to do so, and that started a run for Wake that led to them becoming bowl eligible that year. Here's why the Tech win is up there. The right team won and left very little doubt. It was an upset. Wake was a 10-point underdog. But if you watched any of that game, there was no question who the better team was. It wasn't a fluke. Wake Forest was better than Virginia Tech Saturday afternoon. Impressive stuff. And the way they won is what made it so impressive. We talked about, Robert, how much last week did we talk about how many points it would take in order to win this game, race to 40, Wake can't stop the run worth a lick? I feel like it was the whole storyline for us. That's it. That was the storyline we set for this game. And for good reason. Virginia Tech, second in the country in rushing yards going into last week. Wake Forest, 62nd out of 77 teams. Can't stop anybody. But the defense won this game. Virginia Tech only got in the end zone once. They limited Khalil Herbert, who before Saturday was a Heisman hopeful, to 64 yards, a season low. The previous season low being 106 yards on six carries. That was against NC State, and the only reason he didn't have more is because Fuente called off the dogs in that game. He could do absolutely nothing, and Wake Forest forced turnovers. That's another piece of it. The three interceptions for Nick Anderson, who's a tremendous story. But the part that also is surprising, just as surprising as 
the defense playing as well as it did, they scored playing smash mouth football on offense. It wasn't, when I think Dave Clawson, I think offensive-minded coach, I think about passing game, I think of Sage Surratt, wide receivers they develop, Scotty Washington, Greg Dortch, speed on the outside, Kendall Hinton, that's what I think about. That's not what won on Saturday. They were smash mouth. They only needed 110 yards from Sam Hartman to win. That's all he threw for, 110 yards. Yet they still won this game. They won convincingly. It was a two-possession game till very late. They had 200 yards on the ground. Christian Beal Smith, he was the quickness. He was the uh, lightning, so to speak, in the lightning-thunder combo. And the thunder was Kenneth Walker. He's in the wildcat and just running over Hokies. Wake Forest won in an old-school fashion. It was smash mouth against a team that really built an identity in being a smash mouth football team. One of the most impressive uh, impressive wins Dave Clawson's ever gotten at Wake. All right, let's go. Oh, I'm so excited. And three, two, one, go. The Drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. Let's talk college basketball. And specifically, let me pass along a couple of notes to you. Seth Davis did some great reporting for The Athletic yesterday on what Sean Miller is facing at Arizona, saying that the university was served with nine allegations of misconduct, five of which classified as level one violations, which is the most serious you can face. They got their notice of allegations, which stems back to the FBI's investigation into college basketball, which seems like a million years ago. The second thing I'd like to pass along is just a quote from Bill Walton that's come across my timeline, which is something that I'll always take an opportunity to capitalize on here. Apparently, ABC, which is under the Disney umbrella, of which ESPN is under as well, is going to be airing the Grateful Dead movie, Fire on the Mountain. And in order to promote this, this being aired, Bill Walton gave this quote. Recently, while shadowboxing the apocalypse and wandering the land, I came across the creation of the world and the birth of fire. I quickly spiraled round and round, and I was immediately sucked into the vortex of fire on the mountain, the movie. It became a harmonic convergence of the highest order, bringing together the best of the best of the best of everything with this finer group of young, dynamic action figure superheroes as there is <laughs> as there is in this known universe. Like me, they love the edge, the nature, the groove, the rhythm, the sport, and the culture and rhythmic beat of the Grateful Dead. Great stuff there. I wish I could love anything the way that Bill Walton loves the Grateful Dead, and the way I love reading stories by Brendan Marks, who now joins us. Brendan Marks from The Athletic had a story on Dean Smith earlier today, which we'll get to in a second. But let's start with uh, the Sean Miller stuff here, because that investigation, it, was, it seems like it was a decade ago. I know it was just a few years ago, and we were told, oh, it's going to lead to seismic changes in the sport. Then you watch the HBO documentary with Christian Dawkins, and it seemed kind of to be hokey that the FBI was getting involved with this in the first place. Pat Forty's reporting that it might have had a negative effect, this entire investigation. Do you think it's made a difference in college basketball? 
Well, Josh, let me first start out by saying that may we all have the creativity that Bill Walton has, and may we have the job security that Will Wade and Sean Miller do. Uh, because it is, it's, it's truly remarkable to me to see you know, some of the things that we have heard been reported, some of the um, bits of evidence that obviously came out as, as a result of the FBI investigation that you mentioned the documentary. Um, I don't know that uh, anything has dramatically changed in college basketball, though, as a result of it. You know, I think... Um, you know, the, the number one evidence of that is the fact that as of this time, you know, and we might learn otherwise very shortly, but Sean Miller still has a job. You know, Will Wade still has a job. Some of these guys still have jobs. And um, I think some of the tactics that uh, were so prevalent that, that the FBI, you know, I don't know if exposed is the right word, but was trying to bring to light, um, those are tactics that haven't died down. And so, you know, maybe the public got a taste of the dirty underbelly of college basketball I don't think that that's untrue, but to think that any sort of grand sweeping change came about because of this, um, if they have, I'm still waiting for them. Yeah, I'm interested to see what Steve Forbes thinks about that. We'll talk to Steve Forbes on tomorrow's show. He's usually pretty honest about anything. We'll see if you want to touch that. Brendan Marks with us here. Follow him on Twitter at Brendan R. Marks. His story, Dean Smith's retirement and how it changed North Carolina basketball's future. The Tar Heels, they got in their pickup truck. They spit some some uh, uh, some dip out the window before running over NC State on the football field at Keenan Stadium on Saturday because, you know, hashtag blue-collar football. There were a lot of tongue-in-cheek comments that were made by the folks who run social media for North Carolina football in response to what NC State said throughout the week and, of course, the video they put out on Friday. Sam Howell, he had the comments. We know what a ram is to a wolf, and I think we proved that today. You were watching the game. You were there. What was the best thing that stood out to you among what the Tar Heels dissed and said about NC State? Yeah, you know, I I would be lying if I told you that I didn't spend a, an unhealthy amount of time diving into the, the social media pettiness back and forth between the two. I mean, I'm a sucker for all that stuff. Uh, but to me... By far and away, it's Sam Howell, the sophomore face of UNC football. And it, it's not even the line you mentioned, Josh, about what is a ram to a wolf. He said in his postgame press conference, we don't care about them. It could have been worse. And I think while everyone's <laughs> jaws collectively hit the floor, just to make sure that we, he knew that we had said it, he said again, we don't care about them. Like, it is so stone. And that's, a, that's a murder. I mean, that is stone cold. Um, I didn't know that Sam Howell was, was capable of reaching those depths. Um, but I'm so, so happy to, to now know that he can. <laughs> but doesn't that show that they do care? I mean, it's the practice. It's the same song and dance that North Carolina basketball fans have done for a long time. We don't care about State, even though our coach says that he hates NC State almost more than anybody else. We don't care about NC State, even though we know more NC State grads than we know Duke grads, and those are the people that we see today today. We don't really care about the Wolfpack. Sam Howe, he kind of said the same thing, but if you say that in addition to we know what a ram is to a wolf, aren't you kind of saying that you do care a little bit? Absolutely. and But also, Josh, you know, I point to the common thread between the two examples you provided, and that's the school in question. Uh, you know, I think, you know, as someone who attended North Carolina, I can certainly say that I know more than a fair share of people who um, like to take that higher ground when it presents itself, uh, even when that only presents itself in hindsight many times. So I would say that that is endemic to the school as uh, anything else. But again, you know, the pettiness, the rivalry, the back and forth, um, the quarterback talking smack, 
you know, give me all of that, inject it into my veins. I love the story that you did today. It's very creative. I'm always a fan of people trying to do different things and find different angles. The story, Dean Smith's retirement and how it changed UNC basketball's future. You can find it at The Athletic. It's author Brendan Marks with us here on Sports of Giant. And you caught up with Dick Bedore. You caught up with the number of people who were at North Carolina at the time. Dean stepped down. And you were speaking to the signs leading up to him deciding to step away. It shocked all of us on the outside. But to those who were around, there were some that weren't as stunned by it. And then you kind of describe some of the paths they could have taken in 97 and also around the time when Guthridge decided it was done to, it was time for him to hang it up and they went in the Doherty uh, direction. Rather than have you recap the entire story because I want people to go out and read it, what's the most interesting thing you learned going into the deep dive? Um, Obviously, there were many things that interested you, but what's something that really raised your eyebrows upon learning it? Yeah, Josh, you know, I, I think the the one thing that maybe I had never heard before, you know, from, from anybody at, at any level, um, you know, on the record, off the record before, was the idea that one of the reasons that Coach Smith walked away when he when he did, in addition to a number of other factors, was he already had a sense that his memory was starting to go. And I don't, I didn't remember having heard that before because, um, you know, I think a lot of people at the time and especially in the years after when he was still visible around the program, there was no outward indication of that. You know, there was no indication that he was losing any of that, you know, sort of memory that he was so known for, you know, being able to recall someone's first name 25 years after having a two minute conversation with them. You know, th- there was no sign of that outwardly, but that he felt that, you know, I'm not quite where I used to be. And and it just speaks, I think, to, you know, the memory that he had, the level of attention to detail he had. And, you know, that's sort of been turned into this fable over time. But but really, the fact that this man thought he was slipping and everyone else still thought he was the smartest man in the room, to me, I thought it was just this fascinating dynamic. And it was something that, uh, honestly, I'd really never heard anything about before. Is it a fair knock on Bedore not being able to land Roy both in 97, but also in 2000? Um, I, I don't think it's fair to knock him in 97. And the reason I say that is because everybody, especially locally, looks at that from a North Carolina perspective. And, and I think you really have to look at it from a Roy Williams perspective. And if you can make an argument in Roy Williams' shoes for him staying, which was, you know, he's got a, a preseason top five team. He's got a great chance to win his first title. Um, I believe that was the year, the last year that he had Paul Pierce and, and some of those guys. Yeah. Um, you know, when you take all that into consideration, no, I don't think that that's on the door at all. That's a great situation for Roy to be in. And, and you know, thinking that he could build something to the level that he had seen at North Carolina, um, you know, I think it's unfair to say that, uh, Dick Bedore or anybody else at UNC, Coach Smith, deserves any blame for Roy Because he would have never taken the job, right? Like, the first – you, you kind of spelled it out well with Bedore that the first question Roy would ask in 97, uh, did you did you ask Bill Guthridge if he wanted to run at it? Right. And, and I think that, you know, based on the fact that Roy had known Guthridge before, he obviously knew Coach Smith so well – I think that he knew probably from those conversations that that was something that Coach Guthridge is going to want to try. And so, you know, again, and this is probably something to ask Roy, but, you know, I don't know how seriously he ever considered that. Obviously, the school has so many ties. He's, he's there now. He's done great things. Um, but, again, in that particular moment where he was, where Kansas was, 
Um, you know, I really think that, you know, people give too much credit to him turning them down the first time. I, I don't think it was all that reasonable of an ask in the first place. That's a tough situation to leave. Dean Smith's retirement and how it changed UNC basketball's future. You can find it at The Athletic. Um, Brendan Marks. Follow him on Twitter at Brendan R. Marks. Appreciate you spending the time, Brendan. We'll chat sometime soon. Absolutely, sir. Hope to see you soon. That's right. That's Brendan Marks. Does great stuff with The Athletic covering Carolina, Duke, some NC State. Eh, time to time, he's usually around here with Wake Forest as well. And now, and now, and now. on with the show. Showtime. You're on the drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. I laced that ball, and it was climbing from probably close to the 20 into the 15. It was still climbing, so I was like, oh, this is going to be good by at least two or three. That was Joey Sly yesterday on the 65-yard field goal try. But before we talk about that, we've got a Rappa report from Ian Rappaport of NFL Network. This is from earlier today on Christian McCaffrey's status for this week. Rappaport says, McCaffrey is considered a long shot to play Thursday against the Falcons, a source close to the team says, but they haven't ruled him out and he's pushing to play. He'll work his way back into practice and see if he can make enough progress before the game in Charlotte. To me, I think this is the best time for McCaffrey to get worked in if you think about it. When you look at the timeline, high ankle sprains generally take four to six weeks to recover, and yesterday marked the five-week anniversary of him uh, sustaining the injury in Tampa. So next week would be six, the long span of the recovery time there. I like the fact that he didn't play this past week. It seemed a little soon. If he feels healthy, I think it makes the most sense to work him in at home against Atlanta. It's a poor rush defense. And on top of that, I think I like having uh, a game to work somebody in than 10 days to recover before you face the Kansas City Chiefs on the road. Having 10 days recovery time, I think it's the best circumstance to work him in. Maybe manage his load a bit, but McCaffrey is going to return to the lineup sooner rather than later. Uh, We just don't know if it's going to be Thursday. We now welcome in Joe Person, longtime Panthers reporter from The Athletic. Before we get to McCaffrey and your thoughts on that, we just heard some sound from Joey Sly after the game talking about how close that kick was and how he felt it uh, felt about it when it came off his foot. Obviously, the coaches showed confidence in him, but all we heard about Matt Rule this entire offseason was analytics this, analytics that. That's going to drive a lot of his decisions. Do you think the analytics were telling him the kick was the right move there? Yeah, it's a good question. On on the Fox broadcast, they had, uh, I mean, this is close to what you're talking about. They had chances of Panthers winning 13% if you go for the fourth and 19 versus 2% going for the, uh, the the 65-yard field goal. Um, now, what I don't think those factor into it is the individual, in this case, leg strength of Joey Sly and the fact that special teams coordinator Chase Blackburn and others had seen Sly put it through the, the pipes at the Superdome from 60 in pregame with, with 5 to 10 yards to spare. So... 
I don't know. I, I think Rule makes a good point when he says they didn't have much in their playbook for fourth and 19. <laughs> Right. And uh, the, the the play, as you know, Josh, that 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 as Rule called it, the fatal blow was the third down sack. When uh, give the Saints, give Dennis Allen credit, he schemed up. He saw the Panthers' protection. They were keeping Mike Davis in the backfield. He ran a stunt that put 265 pound d- defensive end Marcus Davenport on Mike Davis. And it was a mismatch. Davenport buried him, buried Teddy Bridgewater, and that's what brought up fourth and 19. I'm conflicted on Teddy a little bit. I think he is a franchise quarterback. I I love the numbers look great. I think he's exceeded my expectations. But the thing that he needs to do better, these late fourth quarter drives, and I'm not even talking about all the games that they've lost. Vegas, obviously, there's the example where Alex Armagh gets the ball and gets stuff. You talked about the you talk about the Chargers game, um, or excuse me, the Bears game, missing DJ Moore on that fourth and two, the pick at the end on the last drive. Yesterday, taking that sack there. But speaking of that Chargers game, it was a very similar circumstance where they were trying to put away the Chargers there, and you can't take a sack in a spot where you're kind of in field goal range. And Teddy Bridgewater takes a sack there. They have to punt it. And boy, if Keenan Allen completes that lateral to Austin Eckler, God knows where this football team's at today. Do you have any concern? Actually, I have a stat here before I ask that question. Uh, Teddy, he is he's had six career game-winning drives among active quarterbacks that are ahead of him uh, in that category. Baker Mayfield, Geno Smith, Mitchell Trubisky, Blaine Gabbert, Case Keenum. It's not great. He's been around long enough and has enough starts to have more than six. Is this something that concerns you? Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know if I'd say concern, but it is absolutely a valid uh, discussion point. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, listen, all these guys, uh, if you're a pretty good quarterback, what with the passing rules now, and the pass interference, all of it. It's all geared now for passing. So you're going to see every week most of these guys put up pretty good passing numbers. The difference being is who's getting it done when it's crunch time. And to that point, and and back to your earlier question, there is little doubt in my mind, based on what I'd seen Drew Brees do the rest of the, the, the first three and a half quarters of that football game, that even had the Panthers scored there, they weren't stopping Drew Brees <laughs> he was gonna in the score. last two minutes. He was going to score, yeah. And so, and that's, he, he's earned that reputation because he's done it. Time and again, Teddy Bridgewater needs to do it. I, I absolutely agree with you. Christian McCaffrey, wouldn't this be the perfect week to bring him back considering the amount of rest he would get following Thursday's game? Well, it depends. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the question. I, I think it's, I think you just got to go by what that ankle's telling you. Okay. And not necessarily telling him what it's saying to your orthopedist, <laughs> uh, who's making plenty of money to make sure that you protect the player from himself. And here's why. If he goes out and, and aggravates it uh, again Thursday night, 
well, then it doesn't really matter when the next game is because he's going to need all that time to rehab again and maybe more. And so I, I, I know the Falcons have, are much worse defense than the Chiefs. I get it. It's a home game. But if the ankle's not right, if it's not 100% or close to it, I'm not doing it because it's just, it's just the setback's not worth, especially in a season, Josh, when this team, yes, they want to be competitive. Yes, they want to win as many games as they can. But they're not contenders. They are not championship contenders. So, in my mind, the setback's not worth any reward you get from it. Two more quick things with Joe Person, who you can follow on Twitter at Joseph Person, read his Panthers coverage in The Athletic. Curtis Samuel, very important in some of the Panthers' offensive success. We saw how much they struggled against the Bears to get in a rhythm. He was really important at that Atlanta game. And I thought yesterday, running the ball, third down, he was a key guy. And he's looking for a contract extension this year. Do you think he's done enough to deserve that extension? Well, it depends what he's asking for. Because right now, as as productive and as, uh, you know, kind of clutch as he's been, he's still the number three receiver on this team. And if he's looking for number two receiver money, I mean, I think we can all agree he's not a number one. And if he's looking for number two receiver money, I don't know. I don't think he's going to get it. Uh, not here because of, you know, you just paid Robbie Anderson. You're going to be maybe paying DJ Moore down the road. Uh, and, and maybe that's what the question is, is do you want to pay Curtis Samuel this year or DJ Moore down the road? Now, DJ Moore, because he's a first-round pick, as you know, they get that team-friendly fifth-year option to exercise, and that that's a big deal. That That's a factor that anyone managing the salary cap is going to take into account. So they love Curtis. I mean, Matt Rule cannot say you're on those Zooms. He can't say enough good things about Curtis Samuel. But, you know, it's it's pretty much – and, and of course, Samuel's agent's going to play for the most money he can. Every agent is. But if they can meet somewhere in the middle, then I could see a deal getting done. I was jealous of you Friday night. How was the Abbott Brothers show in Charlotte? Had people sending me pictures and videos from Charlotte Motor Speedway the Abbots were performing? Did it Did it meet the billing? You know, uh, it was a great time. It was uh... – you kind of way back in the cheap seats at a place like the Speedway, but it didn't matter. The music was good, the beer was cold, and uh, and just good friends and good. T- it, it it was it was cool. I would, it felt a little bit like normal, as much as you know, being in the back of a pickup watching a concert can feel normal. That's pretty cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. It's good to hear from you. Hope to see you in person sometime soon, Joe Person, and uh, appreciate you being here. Appreciate you, buddy. Stay healthy. Yep, you too. That's Joe Person from The Athletic, kind enough to spend some time here. Before we get to Graham's grades, Robert, have you ever seen the movie Fever Pitch? Yeah, you're a huge fan of that, right? No. Isn't it your favorite sports movie? Mm. Didn't you say that was probably the best late-night show host comedy about sports of all time? Didn't you say that? Doesn't sound familiar. Not ringing a bell. That movie, I not a big fan of it, but there's a scene in there 
Jimmy Fallon, biggest Red Sox fan there is, goes to every single game, doesn't miss a game on television when they're on the road, starts dating Drew Barrymore, and that cuts into his time to the point where she has a big dinner party the night that the Yankees are in town. So he, of course, spends time with Drew Barrymore, gets a call late night while they're laying in bed together. He just told her it's the best night of his life. The phone call was by one of his friends who were sitting in his seat saying, you just missed the greatest Red Sox game ever. Oh, my God, we were down 8 to nothing in the ninth. We came all the way back. There were women shirtless standing on tech cars. Oh, my God, this is the greatest night in the history of Boston. Ah! He turns on the television, and he feels the greatest amount of regret he's ever had in his life. Then Drew Barrymore gets mad, and the movie plays on. It's not really a good movie. And I didn't have quite that intense of a feeling fear of missing out Saturday but I was riding back from the weight game thinking about the Penn State Indiana game that had just gone to overtime I was excited to watch the finish but then I got sidetracked got on a few phone calls was worried about dinner and by the time I went back to see what the final was I see that everybody's freaking out about how it ended where the quarterback stretching to the pylon did you think he got in Oh, yeah, I thought he got in. Of course. Why would I not? You didn't see the game, did you? I, not even close, dude. You didn't see the finish to the Big Ten, uh, to the Penn State-Indiana game? I mean, I have a Twitter, so I saw, I saw it, but okay. I did not watch it, okay. no. Well, what I'm saying is him stretching to the pylon, it was so close. Crazy finish there. Then, later that night, I was just pooped, man. Went to the football game, you know, going on walks, things like that. And I was tired. Tired at the end of the day. It was around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. World Series game was in the 7th or the 8th inning. I fell asleep, and I wake up at about 1 a.m., and I look at my phone, and all I see, greatest World Series game ever, oh my God. Kind of like fever pitch again. And I felt this existential dread in my stomach. Oh, goodness, I missed. I missed the great finish. I missed Brett Phillips hit up the middle, allowing for a run to score in the air. Probably the best World Series game since the 16 Game 7 with the Cubs and Indians, or maybe even the Cardinals-Texas Rangers Game 6 with David Freeze coming up big twice. Oh, just so great. And it reminds us why we're all in this space right now. And it's because of how much we love sports and why sports are great. And if you don't love sports... Man, I really feel for you. I really do, because this weekend, it was a great escape, and it was a lot of fun to watch. All of it. Probably the best sports weekend we've had since the pandemic began. All right, I've got my grades for Panthers-Saints yesterday. The Panthers losing narrowly, of course. I'll share those with you next on The Drive.